Well, good morning, uh, everyone. I don't know about you, but this week I don't really feel like my typical jovial self this week. There's a lot of heaviness that we're um, feeling in the world and we're seeing in the world. And as we all came together and we're, we're interceding for Angelia, um, man, the world is, is a broken place. And I think at times we could see kind of what's happening in the world and, and we can, you know, sit in, in our homes or whatever's going on and just think, well, I have the answer, I have the solution. Um, but really we don't. And really at times like this, instead of um, thinking we have the answer, we need to come together as a body and, and pray. Um, we need to pray for the, the people that are in the Ukraine. And a lot of times we pray only for, well, Lord, protect the believers. Well, there's a bunch of people there that don't know the Lord. We need to be lifting them up in prayer as well. We need to lift up the oppressors and say, Lord, please do something. Do something. So I can't really jump into this teaching without just taking a moment, if we could as a body, and just lifting up and going to the Lord and saying, Lord, we need you here. So would you guys be willing to do that with me? So let's, let's join together. Jesus, this world needs you, Lord. God, we fully acknowledge that your ways are higher than ours. Our greatest amount of wisdom is foolishness to you, Lord. So, God, we pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, those that know you and those that don't. God, let there be moments, Lord, that you speak to their lives. God, we pray for the oppressors, Lord, that you would change their hearts, Jesus. And, Lord, you would just show up in powerful ways, Lord. And, God, that through this, Lord, that we would learn to trust you more, God, and that your word would shine despite the circumstances that are going on, Lord. We can't do it on our own, Lord. And, God, intervene with Angelina and the Givens, Lord. God, we need you there as well. God, we trust you in all these things. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, so I'm going to try to do this now. The first service was really emotional. Um, but man, guys, God is doing a, a, some, some amazing things. If, if we could sit back and listen and watch at what he's doing, man, the Lord is moving. So, um, so we're going to continue in our study of the book of Matthew. And over the last few weeks, we've been in chapters 8 and 9, right? You guys remember that for the last few weeks? Uh, we've learned about a lot of miracles that, that Jesus has been uh, performing. And this portion of Scripture, chapters 8, 9, and 10, is actually the third section of the book of Matthew. Okay, so Matthew's broken up into seven parts. There's an introduction, a conclusion, and there's five sections kind of right in the middle uh, of that book. So chapters one through three, which is the introduction to Matthew, that the purpose of those three chapters was to connect Jesus to the Old Testament and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and recognizing Jesus as Emmanuel. And what is so beautiful about the name Emmanuel is it means God with us. He's with us. Chapters 4 through 7, which is comprised predominantly of the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus announcing his kingdom. And if you've ever spent any time listening or reading to anything that the Bible Project puts out, um, they, they define it as Jesus' rescue operation for the world. Isn't that awesome? He's got a plan. And in chapters 8 through 10, we're seeing Jesus bringing his kingdom into reality. So in these chapters, there are nine stories of how Jesus is bringing his light into the lives of the hurting and broken people. And don't we need that? Haven't we been on the receiving end of that? 
Okay, and these stories are broken up into three sets of three miracles. And between each of those, those stories, these interactions, there's a moment where Jesus says, come, follow me. So in the last few months, if you guys can remember, we learned about a leper, a centurion, and a sick mother. And then we get a teaching from Jesus saying, follow me. And then again, we learned about a stormy sea, a demon-possessed man, and a paralyzed man. And then again, Jesus saying, follow me. And today, the passage that we're going to read is the first story in this last triad of stories, triad meaning three, of Jesus bringing his kingdom to this earth. And this passage we're reading today is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. We've got it up on the screen, and we're going to be reading out of the NIV this morning, okay? And it says this, while he was saying this, and that term is really important, we're going to get back to that here in a minute, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. And just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. And what was the reaction here? But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been pushed out, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. And news of this spread through all that region. Let's go before the Lord this morning. Lord, we need you. And Lord, we need our faith to grow. So Father, I pray that you would meet us here, that you would encounter us here, Lord. God, that those things that you're stirring in our hearts, Lord, that are challenging, that are difficult, Father, I pray that they would serve as moments that, that would build our faith in you, would build our trust in you, Jesus. Meet us here today. Yoke us up together with you, Lord, and bind us together as a family, Lord, knowing that we trust you, Lord. Teach us to trust. We ask these things in your precious son's name. And everyone said, amen. All right, so let's get into some background uh, from this passage, okay? Because context is really important, especially when we're reading the Word of God, okay? And at times, when we come to church and we listen to a teaching or a preaching, it's easy to think that the time that passes from Sunday to Sunday is also the time that passed in Scripture. Okay, you guys ever feel that way? Because sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm like, oh, well, it's been a week, so this must have been a week in Jesus' life as well. But that's really not the case here. Okay, so if we can remember our teaching that we had two weeks ago, uh, which was the calling of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And later in verse 15, Pastor Ron taught last week, we read, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he was with them? Okay, so Jesus is speaking these words, these last two teachings that we just had, and then in verse 18, it starts, so our portion of Scripture starts today with while he was saying this. Okay, so now we're putting this together. The last three weeks are all happening at the same time. While he was saying this. So while these words are coming out of Jesus' mouth, 
he now has an opportunity to put action to what he's saying. So he says, don't mourn. But what's he going to do? He kicks out the mourners and raises a little girl from the dead. And I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And then what does he do? He heals a woman who is sick. So Jesus speaks these words, and then something amazing happens. Okay, so for a little bit more background, this account likely takes place while Jesus is still at Matthew's house. Okay, so are we there? You guys following me so far? Okay, so this passage is also found in two other books of the Bible. Remember, we've been talking about that these last few weeks. There's parallels. It's found in Mark chapter 5, verses 22 and 43, and also found in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. So let's look at the similarities in these three passages because there's some really important things that are taking place here. So when we look at the, the differences between these three stories, one thing really stands out. In the book of Matthew, it's only eight verses that we're reading to get this account. Okay, but the book of Mark, it's got 21 verses. and the book of Luke, it has 16 verses. So some of these are two to almost three times the length of the book of Matthew. So Matthew's account tells us of a man who made a request of Jesus. Jesus responds to that request, and then an interruption happens. How many of us like interruptions? I don't. I hate them. You guys are all acting like, you know, interruptions are wonderful. No, they're not. They're terrible. They're the worst, right? But this ruler, in his request to Jesus, is interrupted, and there's no account of him ever complaining about that, of him just trusting Jesus. Okay, so this interruption happens, and then Jesus addresses the interruption. He arrives at the house of this young girl, addresses the people there, and then performs a miracle. So Mark and Luke both dive a little bit deeper into the details of what's going on here. So we find out in Luke's account that the young girl who is dying and then eventually dies was only 12 years old. We also find out that the ruler that was mentioned in the opening verse was a synagogue leader, and his name is Jairus, J-A-I-R-U-S. We also find out that the woman who touched Jesus was in a crowd so intense That Luke chapter 8 verse 42 says it almost crushed Jesus. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. So we also see in Mark and Luke more of an exchange that Jesus has with this young girl's father. And isn't that just so beautiful that Jesus takes time to address all of the people that he's encountering? Okay, and I actually want to read Mark's account. And Mark's account of Jesus' interaction with the father here, it starts in Mark chapter 5. Verses 35 through 43, it reads this. When Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. They told him, your son was dead. Your your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? You guys ever been in that situation? There's no hope. Why are you even praying? There's no hope. Why do you have faith? Nothing is going to change But overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Just believe. Wouldn't that be awesome to have Jesus look directly at us and say, don't you be afraid. Just believe. Because he knows what he's going to do. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? Remember, Jesus just said a couple of verses before that, why mourn when the the bridegroom is here? The child is not dead, but asleep. 
And what happens? But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in with where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kahom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She's 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And I want to just hang out on that last section real quick. Okay, because Jesus is giving instructions. Hey, don't talk about this. And I think that there's moments in our life where the Lord does things and he's telling you, that's just between you and him. Don't put it on Facebook. And I'm serious about that, right? There's a lot of times we could see a cup of coffee and a Bible. Studying with the Lord. Why don't you just go study with the Lord? I don't need to know about it. Just go pray, right? Like, go do that. Don't live your life that everybody can see externally this, like, image that we're supposed to have. There are things that God does and speaks, and it's just to us. It's between us and him. If you're married, there's parts of your relationship that is between you and your spouse. It's not for everybody, right or wrong. So when there's moments that the Lord is teaching us or growing us, let's make those moments be about that. You guys following me on that? Sorry, I was getting a little excited about that. So the, the church I grew up in on Long Island, my pastor used to always say, I've got a little extra. And that was not in my notes, so that was a little extra, okay? All right, so let's get back into, in, into our teaching today on Matthew. So as we piece together the three sides of this story, okay, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. If we close our eyes, we can almost imagine what these moments look like, right? Can, you guys, I don't know if you've got an imagination like that. But sometimes I can close my eyes and you can kind of see the street, there's dust on the ground, there's, you know, there, the houses are there, you can see the robes, and just a crowd of people that are all following Jesus. You can almost visualize it if we take time to just study it, right? So let's jump into this, right? As we're seeing these things happen, what is so important about what Jesus did in this passage, okay? So there's four things that happen in eight really short verses. The first is a ruler requests Jesus to lay hands on his daughter. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the woman believes that if she just touches Jesus, she will be healed. The third is the power of Jesus heals the woman. And the fourth is the power of Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. So the first two events are statements of faith in Jesus' power. And the second two are declarations of his power to restore life. Because that's who Jesus is. He restores life. And in both of these instances, there's a mention of physical touch. Now, I believe every word in Scripture has a point and a purpose. And this is very significant because both of these women would have been viewed as unclean in biblical times. And to understand that, we actually need to look at the Old Testament and understand Levitical law. So, if you were to tell me that when I became the co-lead pastor here in the first three Sundays, I would talk about Levitical law, exorcisms, and women's menstrual cycle, I wouldn't have believed you. But guess what? We're on a journey together. So let's get the seatbelts on because we're going to learn about Levitical law. Now, at this time, there'd be like a cool song that would play, you know, like to signify that we're going to learn about Levitical law. So Levitical law in, in, in its entirety is over 600 laws. There's over 600 of them. And the Levitical law was established as an invitation to trust God's wisdom. 
to trust God's wisdom. And these laws were often ancient ritual symbols that set Israel apart or made them holy. So some laws made them distinct from neighboring nations, and others kept them from things that symbolized death, disease, or moral corruption. Okay, so in that time, you had governmental law, and we know that that changes, right? We see that in time. Laws change. Okay, you had ceremonial law, which is what this is, and Jesus came to fulfill that. And then there's who God is, which is unchanging. That even though he fulfilled the law, he still is who he is. He hasn't changed. God's word says he's the same yesterday, today, and when where? Forever. He's not changing. It's who he is. Okay? On top of the law, there was also sacrifices. So sacrifices were a ritual symbol that connected people to God. In that time, you cannot ascend into God's presence in the temple, but a blameless animal could take your place, covering for your failures so you could be accepted by God. So in the book of Leviticus, there are eight chapters that discuss these two words, clean and unclean. They're found in chapters 11 through 15, and then again in 18 through 20. And another way of saying clean or unclean would be pure or impure. You guys following me so far? I'll take that as a yes. So pure. So when one is clean or pure, you can be near God's presence. But if you are in an impure state, you can't be near God's presence. Now, it's not the end of the world for someone to be unclean, as there were rituals that individuals could follow to become pure, and then they could enter the presence of God. So let's take a look at the Levitical law for these two instances that happen that Jesus encounters, okay? The first is found in Leviticus chapter 15 through 19. Seatbelts on. Click. Okay. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. And anyone who touches her, did you hear that right there? Anyone who touches her would be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean, and anything she sits on will be unclean. The chapter continues that if any man lies with a woman during that time, he has become unclean. And anything he touches becomes unclean, and so on, and so on, and so on. Okay? So we have this understanding of this woman would have been unclean in that time. Okay, but what does the Lord say about touching the dead? Well, that's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 19 and verse 11. And it reads, whoever touches the body of the dead, of any person, shall be unclean for seven days. Seven days. So being unclean would mean that you cannot enter the presence of the Lord. Yet, Jesus touches both of these people. He heals them. He makes them clean. And he is not defiled. Let's think about that for a second. I have goosebumps even, ta- even saying that. He is not defiled. So when he hangs on that cross and he takes the sins of the world, he's not defiled. He is the sacrifice that connects us to the King of Kings. Amen. That we can now approach the Father because of what he's done. He's setting up his kingdom here. And this moment of him not becoming defiled but cleaning the unclean, all it does is further emphasize Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's not what we think should be. It is his way. 
And if you want, if you want to know what that means, simple. If you want honor in God's kingdom, you get it by serving. There was a day I came home from work a couple of years ago, and my wife was sitting. We have this red chair in the corner of our house, and she was just crying. And I was like, oh, man, you know, if you've ever walked home and, and your spouse is crying, that's a big deal. And I walked in, and I said, baby, you okay? And she goes, man, the Holy Spirit's just been speaking to me. Isn't that just like music to your ears? When your spouse is like, I've been praying, the Lord's showing me these things. And she showed me on her computer that she had been writing. The Lord had given her uh, what, what we called leadership expectations for my ministry when I was at Teen Challenge. And one of them that she wrote was this beautiful thing, and it was called washing feet, because that's the kingdom of heaven. And if you've ever washed feet, it's a strange moment. You're very vulnerable. It's a strange interaction with the person that, that you're, you're connected with, Okay. But there was a definition that was attached to it. I'm going to really try not to butcher this because I, I butchered it in the first service. But the leadership expectation was washing feet. And the definition was when our hands stop getting dirty in service of others, our hearts become unclean. When our hands stop getting dirty in the service of others, our hearts become unclean. In the kingdom of heaven, nothing is beneath anybody. In the kingdom of heaven, you forgive. You don't seek revenge. You want to be wealthy in the kingdom of heaven? And give away what you have. And in his kingdom, anyone who is unclean can be made clean. Alan Ross is a theologian. He wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, and he writes the following in regards to the woman who is bleeding. He says, It would be enjoyable to think for a few moments what this would have meant for this woman, her being healed, even though we know nothing more about her. First, her illness was gone. After years of suffering and with doctors saying who, that they could not help her, she was healed. All of us have been ill in some way and know the delight of being well again, not having pain, not having infection, not having incapacitating illness, but to be able to move freely and comfortably in life. She now gets to experience this. Secondly, she was able to live the normal life of a woman. We do not know if she was married or not, but in any case, she would now be able to have a normal relationship with a man to enjoy a marriage and to have children. Now, I said this in the first service. I understand that that is not the pinnacle of a woman's life, okay? But there's an understanding that we have to know here of the implications of what he's saying, okay? For a woman in Israel, this would be a sign of God's blessing. That's why that's important there. It would be a sign of God's blessing. But third, and most importantly, she could now enter the temple for the first time in 12 years, the first time in 12 years to be among the ceremonially clean, to hear the Levitical choirs, and to offer her praises to God at the altar and to eat the holy flesh of the peace offering in the presence of God. Imagine you not being able to encounter Jesus for 12 years. Imagine your prayers not being heard for 12 years. Imagine being separated from society because you're unclean for 12 years. And if we remember the teaching we had a couple of years ago, because this is who Jesus is, he's saying, you're worthy. I choose you. You are clean. 
So we see in these two stories that the degree in, to which Jesus intervenes is directly connected to the degree in which they trust. And when we trust him, he makes us new. When we trust him, he makes us clean. And this goes hand in hand with what we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Jesus is saying, you're good enough to come into my presence. I will meet you where you're at. I will turn your world upside down. I used to do this teaching with the former ministry that I was with where I would ask uh, the people I was working with, I would say, what is your, the most important attribute in a relationship to you? 100% of the time, it was trust. And I asked them, well, how do you get, how do you trust somebody? And every answer, no matter what it was, it always landed on this foundation of honesty. Because that's where trust is built. You're being honest with the other person. And I think we as a church, we have to ask ourselves, do we really trust the Lord? Because there's one thing that I've learned in my life is it seems like everybody else knows how to do what you're doing better than you. Right? This week I found myself doing that. We have this horrific conflict that's happening overseas, and I find myself going, you know what I would do? Like, what value is that? It's dumb. I don't know anything. Okay? Like, my, my wisdom is foolishness to, to the Lord. Right? But sometimes we could do that. We think that we know more than the King of Kings. How laughable is that? So this brings us to, this, to a major point of what Jesus is teaching us here, and simply, it's faith. And there's a significance to the approach that both Jairus and the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment had. Both figures in this passage approach Jesus with faith. And faith is important because it is knowingly rejecting the status quo and what the world says is true and trusting for the impossible. The woman in this story who was bleeding is described in Luke chapter 8, verse 43, as having this issue for 12 years, and no one could heal her. The world gave her her answer. And as difficult as it would be, it would be simple for her to just sit back and live with the pain that she was going through, live with being unclean for the rest of her life. But she knew that all she had to do was reach out and touch Jesus. We can infer by reading this portion of Scripture that Jairus, the synagogue leader, that his daughter was actually still alive at the beginning of the story. That's what Mark and Luke tell us. But now there's been an interruption. And in that time, she has passed away. And people are telling Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. Professional mourners were already there. And isn't that the best? I mean, there's always people that will just beat up on you when you're at the lowest moment of your life, aren't there? Well, it's because you didn't do this. Man, back off. How about give me a hug and say, I'm sorry? Right? That's something as a man I had to learn, right? I want to fix things. That's kind of what I do. When people are like, man, I'm going through this. If my wife would ever say, man, I'm telling you about my day, and I would always be like, you know what, you know what I would do? We should do these three things or whatever. And she would just tell me, would you stop and just listen? That would be nice, right? I've had to learn that over 15 years. Okay, listening is really important. And at times when we really or in our most desperate points, man, people just like to kick you when you're down, don't they? But that's not what happens here. Because people are telling him, people are telling Jairus to stop talking to the teacher. The mourners are there, they're playing the instruments, and Luke chapter 8, verse 52 tells us that Jesus says to stop your wailing, for your daughter is not dead, but asleep. And the crowd laughs at him. 
And that doesn't deter Jesus. Jesus takes her by the hand and says two words. He says, my child. My child. Because we're his. You guys fully understand that? We are his. He's our pops. Okay, I said this a couple of weeks ago. Our heavenly father is not our earthly father. He's so good. He's so good and we are his. He says, my child, get up. And he makes the unclean clean. He brings this little one back to life. And we need to be careful because we can take this message, we could take these moments of faith, and we could turn the meaning of the story completely around. We could look at these moments and say, well, these people had a ton of faith. And because of that, they were healed. And then we could take circumstances where we think God doesn't show up and doesn't come, come through, and we could start saying, well, if only I did this or that. If only I prayed more, Jesus would have listened and that person would have been healed. If only I gave more, then I would have enough store credits and I could cash it in. I listened to a, a beautiful podcast this week called My Strange Bible. The, the folks that put the Bible project together do this great teaching through this book. And the presenter talked about faith and he worded it like this. Looking at faith in this way makes Jesus passive in this story. And requires us to earn enough faith tokens to be at a place where we can cash them in. With that perspective, we have changed the miracle that Jesus did from being about how he met us where we are and works with us where we're at, and we make it about ourselves. The truth is, Jesus meets us where we're at if we're simply willing to go. And there are times that we approach Jesus like this, and I find myself doing it. And I laugh when that happens. Because I remember this passage in God's Word in the Old Testament in this good old book of Job, chapter 38, verse 4. God asks, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Hmm. Both people in the story knew faith. They knew their skills had ended and they needed something supernatural to take place. And they allowed Jesus to move. And that's what these moments are about. When we have difficulties in life, Jesus is asking us, will you draw near to me? Will you come to me? There are moments that invite us to trust the Lord. And I, I told you a couple weeks ago there's going to be some stories I'm going to share through these first couple weeks so you guys can get to know me a little better. And I want to share with you a, a moment in my life where the Lord moves significantly and built my faith like it was nobody's business. When I was about 15 years old, my brother's about two years older than, than me. He was about 17. And it was the uh, summer between his junior and senior year. I was about to be a sophomore. And all of a sudden, whenever he would use the bathroom, blood would come out. Really scary moment for, for anybody in any circumstance, in any situation. And so he was bleeding internally. So we took him to the doctor. Doctor said, get him to the hospital. He goes to the hospital. And for two long weeks, all they did is poke and prod my brother. That's all they did. They would knock him out for some tests because some of them are really difficult uh, experiences. And he woke up in the middle of some of them when they were testing him. And my brother never had a frown on his face. Just was always like, hey, we're going to figure this thing out. I remember going up, up into his room, and they'd wheel in a Sega Genesis, and we'd play Batman together. 
I don't know why I remember that. You get 15 minutes because he was in the, the, the kids' wing, right? Even though he was 17, they blessed us with that. And it was really good for him. It was really therapeutic uh, for him. And uh, there was a time where my parents brought me over to my grandparents' house, and I stayed with them because it's a lot dealing with a kid who's sick. Okay, and I feel for Josh and, and Rachel, and I feel for Angelia, and I just keep praying, like, Lord, show up, please, we need you in this. And uh, there's a night my grandmother came into the room that, that I was staying in at her house, and she said, hey, we should pray for Anthony. Anthony's my brother. I said, it's okay, Granny. It's not like he needs blood or anything. He's going to be okay. Not knowing that that night he passed out in my mom's arms and lost eight units of blood. About a day later, they took him in for surgery. They did exploratory surgery on him. Just cut him open. To this day, he's got this giant scar down his body. And all I remember is going to the hospital and sitting in the chapel. That's all I can remember. And in the context of this story, we didn't have cell phones at this time. We had beepers at the the best is what was going on in the world at that time. And I remember sitting there. My mom is in some waiting room upstairs, you know, waiting to hear from the doctors and stuff. I just remember thinking, man, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on. There's a knock on the door of the chapel. And it's Sister Josephine Zito. And she goes... I don't know uh, why I'm here, but uh, the Lord said I have to, to pray for your brother. <laughs> Let's go. Let's start praying. A few minutes later, it's Mark Richter. I don't know why we're here. We got to pray for your brother. And over and over and over again, people just showed up and they interceded for my brother. We got so loud. That the security guard came in and said, guys, I get it. I'm a believer. But you got to keep it down. Okay? And we said, okay, sorry, sorry, our bad, our bad. And about five seconds later, we were rip-roaring, just interceding for Jesus, just saying, Lord, we need you here. And all of a sudden, the door burst open. And it's my mom. And she goes, they got it. They found what was wrong with him. 20 years later, my brother is still alive. And guys, it would be easy And worship team, if you guys want to start making your way up, it would be easy to take that moment and take those events and say, well, God, why him? What did he ever do to anybody? My brother is the sweetest human being alive. What did he do? If anything, I probably deserved it way more than him. But it was a moment that I allowed the Lord to build my faith. It solidified things that, guys, when we pray, guess who's listening? Jesus. And we need to take this time to say, Lord, Do we really trust you? Do we trust you in the difficult? Because it's so easy to trust him in the good, right? It's so easy to trust him when our finances are overflowing, but when they're not, all of a sudden we're back to praying, right? But we need to trust him in all of those things. So this moment that I experienced with my brother was a moment that solidified my faith. And that's how we apply this teaching of what Jesus is showing us today. Do we actually trust him to make the unclean clean? to heal the sick, to spend time with him and say, Lord, I trust you in these things. So these two events that we read about today, one is about faith in Jesus' power, and the other is a declaration of his power to restore life. So as we close, if we could put the questions up on the screen, 
want to ask you these simply. Is the Lord asking you to trust him with something today? And understand that that trust is built with honesty, and that honesty is met on your knees praying. Saying, Lord, I need you. So today, if you need prayer, there are people here who want to pray for you. And secondly, do you actually trust him? Do you actually trust the Lord that he will come through and do what he says? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives, Jesus. We need you today. So, Lord, as we come before your throne, as we seek after you, I pray that you meet us. Take us by the hand, Lord, and touch us, Lord. God, we repent as a church, Lord, for the times that we come to you telling you what to do. But, Lord, we come open-handed, open-eared, saying, Jesus, show us. Build our faith. Build our trust. We need you, Jesus. And we ask this in your precious son's name. Amen.